Nah, I was a financial train wreck until I was about 31. And by train wreck, I mean, you know, like most people had a cool car, all debt, no money, and had no idea that that's not a good plan for success. Uh, I was making poor financial decisions and they started coming to a head, right? Where it's like, oh, you need, I need money now. And I'm, and I'm, you know, after all, you just get sick of being broke. That's my website. My website's called Broke is a Choice because it was like, dude, I'm broke all the time, living week to week, like so many people. And it was only because I was making lousy decisions. That's it. And so you get sick of me. Right. It's like the, it's like one day you, you just start going to the gym every day. Like I'm just sick of looking this way. You know, you just get sick mm-hmm. of it. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled Podcast. This is episode number 141. Clark, how's it going? What's going on in your world? Good. How are you? Nothing much. I mean, I guess yesterday, yesterday, right? Or two days ago, we interviewed Chris Hogan again. So Chris was on the show a year and a half ago or so, right? January of 19, I believe. Yep. Yep. So anyway, we'll have a guest interview with him coming up. It was pretty interesting. Shorter episode, right? About a half hour or so. But he he's given away three copies of his books, two everyday millionaire copies and one retire inspired. So we'll probably launch that interview in the next little bit. So look out for that giveaway and an interesting interview where we, we asked him specifically about debt and real estate, right? If you listen to Dave Ramsey, you know, obviously he's against debt. And if you buy property, he says to do so in cash. So we asked him about that and also his his buckets of mutual funds, the growth, aggressive growth, growth and in income and international. So we asked him about international underperforming the last few years and his take there. So I think that'll be a pretty interesting guest interview coming up. Uh, but everything else going pretty good. What about you? Not a lot. Just getting ready. My It's my wife's birthday today, actually. So we're, we're going out to celebrate that. And, uh, you know, got a few Fourth of July festivities, hopefully, that, that plan out. Uh, we'll see how that goes with our You guys get a sitter here. or are you, you taking the kids with you? No, we got a sitter for this is the first time since uh, COVID started that we're getting a sitter. So it's been four months since we've had a date with just <laughs> the two of us. So. A little getaway. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Good for you guys. Something else, I guess, that popped up, just another interview here. To, or a review, excuse me, an iTunes review to, to highlight. This one's from, I like this name, Fight Fire with Fire. Must listen. Since finding the show, it has become one of my favorite financial podcasts. The broad scope of guests is amazing. From janitors to teachers to real estate investors to CEOs, you always get a different perspective. I will be a lifetime li- listener. Keep bringing great content. Thanks for the content. So pretty cool. Thanks for writing in and, and leaving a review. Appreciate that. It helps us grow the show and, and find new people. So thanks to Fight Fire with Fire for doing that just a couple days ago here. So we had a guest write in asking about the difference between millionaires that we interview that have net worth between one and let's just say four and those that have net worth of five and over specifically five to that 10 million. We haven't had a ton over the $10 million mark, but Nonetheless, Clark and I were talking a little bit about the show, and this is something that we've got some some resources and stuff coming out on our new website. We also have several podcast interviews that we've done around this subject, and it's something that we've spent a lot of time discussing and thinking about and talking about. And one of the biggest things that we've realized is really mindset for those that are trying to get to that five-plus mark. We've had a ton of millionaires come on that are between one and five, and say, hey, you know, I really wanted to get to two, or I really wanted to get to three, or even just one, that was going to provide enough income for me to retire and do whatever I wanted. 
those that have hit five plus have really been very intentional, one, about getting there, but two, really had that mindset drive. Goal setting was a big part of getting to that point, as well as making the little goals along the way to get there for whatever reason. Yeah, I think it's just a different, and I don't think one's right or wrong, right? To each their own. Um, but, but I think there's a, you can notice on ours, I think we've probably, how many, Jace, over, let's call it five, six million, 10 or something, maybe t- yeah. 15 that are, that are over that. But you can tell listening to them, the mindset, and certainly episode 100 on David, where he's worth a hundred million, uh, which is a great episode. If you haven't heard that, go check it out. But, the, the mindset shift starts to change and for them it becomes a little bit more of a game in a sense right of hey can i win and can i keep growing it whereas you know people that are under five it's more it's very intentional right i think we we would say that all of our millionaires are very intentional because i don't think you can get there without being intentional but the the ones that are over five six seven are much more intentional saying, Hey, I'm going to grow this. I'm going to push this. What can I do? Right here? How am I, here are my goals to do this and do that. Whereas anyway, so it's an interesting, it's an interesting question uh, that the listener wrote in. And again, we've been, we did an interview, what Jace two weeks ago, right on the earn and invest podcast Yeah, with, with doc G the doctor that we've had on the show earlier. And, and we have another interview with him coming up. So we, we might release that episode on our show as well just because we think it's it's helped us talk through hey what have we learned from interviewing it's going to be we've probably done 150 millionaires or so just because we have some in the pipeline and so the things that have surprised us right i think one thing that has surprised us is most of the millionaires or several a, a higher percentage of the millionaires we've interviewed have not paid down their their home mortgage right or not paid it off even if they could they've been okay with having the loan so on that interview or episode, rather, we we discuss some of those things. But uh, um, agree with Jace, right? I think mindset starts to shift, intentionality starts to heighten a little bit when the net worth crosses six million or so. Yeah, and I think too, you know, we discussed some of the things that change at that level of wealth. And one thing that that we've seen and we've heard a lot of these millionaires talk about, and even even have mentioned to us that. Really, they believe that you can have a very, very, very good life in that five to 10 range. And everything that they do above that $10 million range for them and their, you know, whatever they're doing, I don't think many of them have really picked up, you know, extra lifestyle things. Maybe they bought a second home in a couple of cases or, or, or even a third in a, in a couple of different cases, but they haven't really scaled that lifestyle to that, you know, quote unquote rich and famous that we see where they're buying, you know, lavish sports cars all the time and and going on these crazy expensive vacations. Don't get me wrong, they definitely go after some nice things, but it's not to the point where, you know, the person that's, you know, in five million can't have that kind of lifestyle. They don't scale to buying the the, you know, the multi million dollar mansions that are worth twenty million dollars, even though, you know, worth a hundred kind of thing, for example. Yep. Yep. Totally agree. So on last week's episode, we had John. John works as an airline pirate and as a pilot and has a current net worth of $2.2 million. He has about 750000 in real estate, over $1 million in cash and investments, including his retirement accounts, and five twenty nine. He's 49 years old and had a net worth of just $57,000 in two, 2003 when he was 32 years old. So go check out that episode if you're interested in that. On today's show, we have Alex. Alex is a millennial with a net worth of $500,000. He's a real estate investor. He owns several units and a mix between single and multifamily. 
most of his real or most of his net worth is in real estate. He's got about a hundred thousand in cash and a few ETFs, and he goes into a long uh, discussion about how important it is to have cash, especially as a real estate investor. He admits he was a train wreck up until about 31 years old financially, and he decided to turn it around because he was tired of being broke. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Alex. Alex, do you want to just give us a little about your background and kind of what you're up to now? Uh, yeah, what's up? Uh, I am a real estate investor in Fayetteville, North Carolina. I started buying rental real estate in 2014, single-family homes. I did that for a while, and then in 2019, I bought a small multifamily apartment building. Uh, I found real estate to be a great way to create wealth, create cash flow, and provides uh, me a lot of personal freedom. I love it. Awesome. And what's your net worth today? Uh, just under half a million. And is that all real estate? That is almost all real estate. Probably I have probably 25% of that is in cash equities and things like that. Yeah. Cool. And in the equities, is that invested in the market or is that just straight cash you keep in a bank account ready for to, to strike for a deal? Half, about half, probably, yeah, somewhere in there. I have mostly just ETF, SPOI in the, in the equities. I do sit on cash because you have to have cash in real estate. You have to have cash in real estate, uh, for months like this when the whole world gets told, you know, we can't evict tenants for a month and we don't know how long that's going to go and job losses. So you, with real estate, it's, I, I don't know how equity traders do it where it's like sitting on cash doesn't do you much good, but with real estate, you, Unfortunately, it's unsure. There's no metric for the correct amount of buffer of cash that you need versus how much debt you have, but you probably always need more than you think. So I'm always sitting there with cash not at work, frustrated. But then, you know, weeks like today, uh, weeks like this last week, I get really excited that I'm like, eh, that's probably going to be, I'm probably going to need some of that. Totally. I want to talk about that a little bit, especially because you're so young and you've kind of learned that lesson already. But the money that you've got invested in, in in the equities, has it always been like that? Or is that something you just kind of put in there in the last couple of years? Nah, I was a financial train wreck until I was about 31. And by train wreck, I mean, you know, like most people, I had a cool car, all debt, no money, and had no idea that that's not a good plan for success. So I started with equities because uh, real estate is a high barrier to entry in many ways. Obviously, you can go on to a digital brokerage and just buy some stocks, but buying a real estate transaction is uh, quite a bit more difficult. So I started with equities and for me, real estate, you know, people will give it a lot of words like, oh, you have more control or this and that. And I don't buy any of that. I think real estate for me is just a little more fun, but I think both are incredibly important. I'd like to do more equities going forward because I know that there's going to be a massive opportunity. So some of it is just, look, in 2014, when I started, real estate was highly underpriced. Interest rates were uh, depressed, and so you could get a lot of property cheap, and you could put cheap debt on it, and so it really pumped up that return on investment uh, for for those. But now, I think over the next six months, equities are going to be where the deal is, and that's probably what I focus most on. Yeah, when did you start investing in equities? Was that like in your early twenties? No, my early twenties. No, all I did was buy cr- on credit cards, dude. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's my late twenties. I'm a late I'm a late bloomer in this. Uh, I've actually, I'm proud of how well I've done in, the, in a few short years. No, I started buying equities like I was really scared of it. You know, I started with like a thousand bucks. Hey, let's just put this into, like I said, SQI and see what it does. And some of it for me was just, oh man, well, mostly just boring. Oh, look, it didn't move. Nice. <laughs> you know, and then, and then you go buy a year and you're like, wow, that really, I think I started buying equities. I know you're asking that. It's like 2011, 2012, somewhere in there. Right. And 
So right around then, the market was gangbusters. So I was like, dude, all you got to do is stick this in here and it makes not, it's not life changing, but you see it, right? If you can extrapolate a lot at all, it's like this thing really works. And so then I started putting money to that, but then I, I needed something bigger because I needed cash flow for me, for my situation, you know, my personal situation, I had a boss that I hated. I needed some flexibility in my life. So for me, I had to have cash flow, even a few hundred bucks. So uh, equities didn't, equities didn't solve the big problem that I had, the, the immediate problem, which was I need, you know, how can I get a thousand bucks in my month, uh, in my pocket every month, mailbox money, so I can get some breathing room from a tyrant boss that I had to get rid of. What were you doing for work at that time? Selling cars. Selling cars at a, at a used car dealership or new car dealership or? A new car dealership, a BMW dealership. And is that what you were driving to? Uh, I was driving a Volkswagen. Okay. A little GTI. I love that thing. Go. I had no business buying it. <laughs> uh, well, it wasn't that. It's like, you know, there's so many people you're making. I was making six figures and I had a $30,000 car, which isn't that bad, but you know, I had 1200 bucks in my checking account and that was it. Yeah. That's not a good position to be in, but that's how a lot of people live. Totally. Totally. And did you start selling cars like right out of high school or college or? Uh, I was in the army. So when I got to the army, I didn't know what to do. All I knew is I didn't want, I didn't want that anymore. And so I stumbled into car sales because, you know, I'm just so charming. And so I figured I'd be, it would work. And, you know, you're 27. I was like, dude, I just need beer money. I don't, I'm not trying to, I didn't think it was a thing about a career. I was very short sighted. And so look, I'm not ashamed to admit it. I think that's how most people act. Right. And so then after a while, I, I turned 30 or so and I'm like, wow, well, this is not a long term sustainable plan. So I needed something. So I started investing in equities because just, it's just so, uh, it's just so accessible. Right. And everybody knows, like, look, the stock market goes up, you make some money. So I got into it that way. Um, I only got into real estate a little later when, again, it was like, I needed something else that suited my personal lifestyle more than just, you know, building wealth sounds good, but what is that? How does that serve you right now? Sometimes it, sometimes it doesn't need to. I think some people just go to work, accumulate your equities in a few years, you retire. But me, I had to get out immediately. So it turned me towards real estate. It turned me towards real estate because I just didn't have, like I said, I just need, I needed income. Yeah. No, I appreciate your honesty and openness. Thank you. So when did it, I, I want to get into all this real estate because I know you own about nine properties, right? Yeah. Eight single families and uh, we bought a 24 unit apartment building, which was cool. Okay, cool. So I want to get into all that. But first, so you said, how did it shift? It was partly the job, right? You said, I got I got to get mailbox money. I got to get away from this boss. Part of it was that you turned 30 or you were approaching 30. Mm-hmm. Was there a single instance or a conversation you had or a book you read or something you heard or anything else? And then how did you come to real estate? Well, it wasn't anything super particular. It's more like uh, I was making poor financial decisions and they started coming to a head, right? Where it's like, oh, you need, I need money now. And I'm, and I'm you know, after all, I just get sick of being broke. That's my website. My website's called Broke is a Choice because it was like, dude, I'm broke all the time, living week to week like so many people. And it was only because I was making lousy decisions. That's it. And so you get sick of me. Right. It's like the, it's like one day you, you just start going to the gym every day. Like I'm just sick of looking this way. You know, you just get sick mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm more mad than I am complacent at one point. Yeah. So, it's like Dave Ramsey calls it like the I've had it moment, right? Of being in debt. Fe- I don't Phoenix know if you've heard of that. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. The Phoenix moment. So, but yeah, same exact, same exact thing. So I was like, okay, we gotta get, we gotta, we gotta quit this. And so I just went into no chill mode. I was like, dude, sell everything that doesn't make money and drive a crappy car and live like a peasant. And then I went back to school and I got my finance degree, be around money. And then I'll freaking have some money. And it didn't quite work that way because people who teach finance and business and college are like academics, you know, like that's don't, it's hard to learn life. 
Yeah, I learned, yeah. like yeah. life from somebody who hasn't done it. They just learned it. They learned it from a book, and now they're teaching you. I'm like, get out of here. Uh, but look, the finance degree <laughs> helped, and then I went to banking, and then I found out there's people in banking all day long that are broken, living week to week. They don't know anything about money either. But it helped. It helped a little bit, and it's allowed me to start getting. So around the same time that I was finishing up that degree, I was like, the equities are fine, but I need something. You know, I was saving up cash, and I was like, I need somewhere to parlay this. And I looked at the, I looked at the, my opportunities. I was like, man, I really don't want to start another business because then I'm tied to another job, and it's just the boss I hate becomes myself. Ugh, not not fine for many people. It just wasn't good for me. I didn't have anything to sell. I didn't have a service. So I'm like, dude, I don't want to force it. Right? Like it has to fit my personality. I don't want to force it. And so I said, what can I do? Get this. I said, what can I do that's tried and true and always works? I didn't want to get rich quick scheme. I wanted it to be mostly passive. I didn't want to have to create another job for myself. I didn't have a lot of money, so I had to use debt, right? And it's like, how do you, that there's no business. And I wanted to have cash flow so that I could like stop being worried about going to work immediately. And it's like, what serves all those boxes? Like the, the correct answer should be nothing. Nothing should allow you to make cash flow tried and true with, uh, if you have no money or very little and, very little uh, and work. it's passive. Well, very yeah. little work. Yeah. And it's passive. Yep. And so yep, yep. I was like, but. But real estate, 2014, man, actually before that, but 2014, I was like, you know, I bought a property for $55,000. I moved in it a year later it appraised for like 70 grand more than I paid and it cash flows. And we pulled all the equity out, moved out. So I have nothing in the deal. I have a ton of equity. It makes me money. I was like, dude, this is so easy. <laughs> and then I bought seven, and then I bought seven more in the last three years, four years. Something like wow. That. So you keep saying we, when you refer to these properties, who do you buy them with? You have one Either partner all, or multiple partners? All, all the single families are my own. I just say we because, well, it just sounds bigger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I mean, look, it, takes, it, look it, it takes a team to get these done. You know, a real estate transaction, you need two brokers. You need a buyer, a seller, a title attorney, an appraiser, a lender. Like, it takes 10 people to get one of those deals done. So I always say we because I, whenever I think about it, it's like it's me and a bunch of people getting this done. There's nothing I can do by myself. Nothing. Right, right, right. Um, so no, it's good. Let's go into this first one and, and maybe spend the most time there because I think that's probably the hardest and takes the longest, right? And then the other ones soon follow. Um, so how did you find this one? How did you know where to look? Where did you look? Did you get in contact with the broker? Did you look online? Maybe walk us through this first deal. Yeah. So I started, I was listening. I don't remember how it, it came about, but I, I had that idea. Okay. Real estate. And then I was listening to real estate podcasts and I started going to MLS and looking. And again, like timing really matters here because I don't want to give bad advice to the next person who listens to this and just goes on the MLS, the real the realty service and starts looking at deals thinking right. that they're going to replicate this because this is a 2014. So 2014, I go on the MLS and I find a deal that's like, it was move in ready on foreclosure on the MLS for 55 grand, something like that. And so I went to them. I looked at the house. The house is like 1800 square foot. It was in good shape. So I was able to move in. With an, I was able to move in with an FHA loan, which basically means I came out of pocket three grand for a fifty-five thousand dollars house. So I lived in it. Eighteen months later, we ended up refinancing it. Uh, it was worth one hundred and fifteen. I pulled out twenty grand. I lowered my rate. I took the PMI off. So like I, I pulled out twenty-seven grand in cash and kept my payments the same. And I was like, dude, let's do this again. So, it, but look, it takes a little bit of time. So two thousand sixteen is when I bought the next one, um, and that's when I started. That one I turned into a rental right away. So you pulled the, you pulled the money out of that first one and then mm -hmm. you stayed, you stayed living in it though. Yep. And did yeah. you rent out rooms? Did you rent out? It was just one single family home, right? You didn't, did you rent anything out? I didn't rent anything out. I kind of just, I lived in it knowing that it would be a rental later. Mm -hmm. And then you said, let's do it again. 
PMI for anybody that doesn't know private mortgage insurance, if you put down less than 20%, you pay that above it, right? Until you get to the 20% in equity. So the second deal now, you say, okay, I, I did that once. Let's do it again. Yeah, but I wanted it to be a rental. Right. So, now you can never so again, rent I go online. I found a deal for like, I forget the exact numbers, but call it like 45 grand. And so what we did that time, because I've been saving, 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 saving. So for like five years now, I'm driving that crappy car. So what I did that time was I paid cash for the house, 45. And then I put like 30 into it, maybe less than that. I think I owned the whole house for like 65, 68. And so then you were again, working at the car dealership during this time to earn uh, money or working oh, working at the bank. Okay. Yeah. W2. I had to have a W2. I knew that to get all the good financing because I yep. wanted to get 30 yep. year. It works good with the 30 year financing. They're all at like four and a quarter percent. Uh, so what condition are these houses in when someone hears $45,000, they don't think of much probably, right? Yeah. Bad. Is that how bad it was? Condition. Is that because the, yeah. the prices were so cheap? Yeah. Part of it was, look, uh, again, the Brett recession left millions of foreclosures on the market. So some of it is the banks were unloading foreclosures and they're just, we got to get rid of them. Right. Some of it is, uh, yeah, they're in bad condition and they need, and they need work. The first one I got lucky that we were able to move in, but the second, all the other deals that I bought, that no chance you could move in. And so when you get financing, see, this is what, this is where I, this is where the, the strategy changed. Cause I, you can't get financing at the time of purchase for dilapidated houses. Nobody's going to give you an FHA loan for a house that you don't live in. And nobody's going to give you a conventional house, loan for a house that you don't live in that's in shambles. So what you do is you buy it with cash, you fix it up with cash, and then you refinance once there's a tenant in it. Then you can get the good financing. And so that was our, that was our strategy. Buy it with cash, rehab it with cash, then pull all the equity out on the backside. So talk us through that. Who, who's doing the work? Are you just, are you just finding contractors? And then on average, maybe how much are you putting into it? So the first one, the one I lived in, I kind of did it myself. The second one, I had a guy do it, uh, who was a regular contractor you found, you know, just somebody I, Found online, he showed up, gave me a bid. It was a little high. Uh, ended up not being a great working relationship. Contractors are the hardest part of this business, man, by a long shot. Uh, you live and die by your contractors. And so then by that, by the time I did the next one, I had found a, uh, old army buddy who started doing rehabs full and property management full time. So he ended up taking all my deals from then on and they're all about the same. We try to be all in for 65 grand and we want it to be worth 95 or 100 when they're done. So we create 25% equity. So when I go get the debt, I actually have nothing in any of my deals. They're all pure profit. I have no money in any of my deals and I have 25% equity in all of them. It's not like I'm not high on debt. I just create the equity in the time of uh, the value add and the time of purchase because I purchased them so cheap. And then uh, we put the debt on afterwards at 75% loan to value pull all my cash back out, leave the equity, leave the cash flow. And I have all my cash in pocket. It's a pretty neat system. <laughs> wow. So buy for 45, put 15 to 20 in. Yep. And then, and then lever it up and at 75% LTV and then rent it out. Yep. And Make, what will that, is this like two bed, three bed, one bath? These are mostly three twos. I own a couple of three them twos. four twos. Uh-huh. Yep. And so someone will rent for some of those properties that I'll rent that we own, like we own for sixty five grand, they rent for nine fifty, uh, which is pretty good. Not yeah. Sure and so walk better. us walk us through. Me, uh, so they all the seven seven houses, eight houses, right? Eight, eight single families. Eight single families. Yep. Do you live in one of them right now? Uh, right now I do actually. Yeah. So you so you rent out seven single families plus the multifamily property. Yep. And are they all pretty close to you, or do you buy in the same area or different areas? Yep. How we how far all, is the yep. farthest one away? Oh, so all right around the same area. Yeah, they're all real close because, you know, I don't want my property manager driving all over town. Try to right. keep, it, keep it a little consolidated if you can. 
make his life easy. If his life is easy, my life is easy. So you have a property manager for them all? Yep, all of them. Gotcha. And then how much do they, I guess in total, or you can break them out either way, whichever is easiest for you, that the eight houses, I guess seven that you rent out, what do they cash flow? Uh, cash flow is funny. It depends on how you look at it. If you go to my Schedule E and my tax returns, it would be two hundred and fifty dollars a door per per door per property per month. Two hundred and fifty per door per property a month. Yeah, that's about it. That's about what it will come out in my tax returns. I think after depreciation, so it's a little bit. Uh, no, yeah, uh, before depreciation, but okay, after gotcha, depreciation gotcha. before before before. So after tax, after yeah. the mortgage payment, they cash flow about two fifty. Yeah, which is pretty good, I think. Yeah. And what's been, I know, I mean, you probably have some neat stories, right? Because you spent so much time rehabbing it. Any, any nightmares, any disasters? And I bought all those properties, the other, whatever, six, long distance. So I never saw any of these properties, the rest of my properties. In fact, some of them I bought oh, wow. without, my, without my contractor seeing them. Sometimes I called them up and I said, hey, I bought this house, already closed on it. I know you haven't seen it. We need to rehab it and, and get it rented. Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't let me do that anymore. <laughs> but yeah, we bought a house that had literally growth coming through the walls, like not even the window, like just growing through the walls. We had the outside bushes. I bought that property for like 31. We put 35 into it. It was worth 105. I mean, we killed it and I never saw it. So in fact, th- 30, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was going to say, in fact, there's two houses and, and I moved back here about three months ago. There's two houses in town that I've still never seen. That I bought long distance. Wow, and spent thirty five thousand dollars renovating them. Yeah, they, they're in town. They're right up the street. I just haven't been there yet. <laughs> <laughs> not not even to well, drive by and say thanks. <laughs> there's two of them. I still haven't seen. Yeah, that's pretty yeah, wild, right? But look, it's the you know people say like real estate's really passive. Certainly not as passive as the equities market. But I think if you design the system in a way that like I designed my system from the very start, and everybody knows like I don't want to have to come here to deal with this, and so. That builds into how I hire people and how I talk to them and how I make sure that I don't do certain things because it's like, no, don't get in the habit. It has to be passive for me. How did you end up finding your contractor? Um, it's complicated, man. Like no good contractor is going to deal with you when you're new. They're just not because why would the good contractors deal with somebody new? The good contractors deal with somebody who's already good. So some of the process is like just getting good enough to attract somebody who's going to show up and, and do the right thing and, and some of it is, you know, you get better. Uh, how do I say it? People will gravitate towards those who do good work. So like if you do good work, you show up, you pay on time, you're easy to deal with. And that guy's like, Hey, when's the next job? And then you get a little bit better relationship. The other thing is I send my contractor so much business. My, my goal is not to make my contractor work good for me. My God, my job is to send so much business to my contractor that he's overloaded with work. Then he's like, I can't turn down Alex. He makes me too much money. That's how I build relationships. I make other people so much money that they can't turn my phone calls down. So when did you end up leaving your job in banking? November. I quit. I was bored. I was bored. I wanted to sell my house in Las Vegas and the market, <laughs> I knew the market was hot and I knew the market was, so six months ago, yeah, I, I traded about 20% of my equities for, I bought some gold ETFs, which haven't done that good, but it was better than owning stocks. So I bought some gold ETFs and I sold my house in Las Vegas knowing that the markets were overheated. I didn't expect this, but I think everybody expected something. So I sold the house in Las point. Vegas. Yeah, I sold the house in Las Vegas. I got a little bored. I came out here. I said, you know, let me work on the business for a few months. Uh, we decided to start flipping houses and we're going to try to make a YouTube show out of it. And so we started that. We're in the middle of selling the first flip now and the world is ending. So wish me luck. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I don't know. I'll probably end up going back in banking here before too long. Uh, but well, no, who knows? 
where do you kind of go from here? Do you want, is there some point where you want to quit doing banking or having a W-2 job or is it really just come down to how much passive you can generate out of your real estate to get there? You know, for me, again, it's like what suits my lifestyle more than the money. The money, real estate, I don't need that much money. I like books, right? I don't, I don't, my life doesn't cost anything. So like a little money for me goes a long way. Um, so for me, it's more like I have enough that I don't have to go to work. Well, now I have a problem of incredible boredom, which, uh, is, I mean, it's a good problem to have. I know a lot of people probably get frustrated with that when I say that. They're like, freaking guy, his problem is boredom. Come on. Uh, <laughs> uh but it's, a, but it's a real problem, right? And I, and I like people. So for me, like not having somewhere to go and hang out with people all day is a actual bigger problem than not having enough money. So I may go into banking. I may go back into banking to find a job that needs somebody to solve a specific challenge. Like I really like doing um, small business loans. That's what I did in Las Vegas, small business underwriting or risk analysis. So I really like that. So if I could find a job that's like, Hey, I like that challenge. I would go back and work just to keep myself um, busy. Plus, you know, people give work myself. I, I, when I say people, I mean me, I give work a real bad rep, like W2 incomes, wage slavery. Like I'm not a big fan of it, but. People have to have something to do and it's good to work in groups just as much as good to work on your own thing. I think for me, my, my job, my, uh, my real estate, I can work on. It's just mine. I can go off and work on that and sink myself into it. But then if I go to a day job, it's like, you know, you can be part of a team working on some other project. It might not be yours, but those two different, um, you know, approaches, they give you a big flexibility in, in what you're doing. Yeah, I think you bring up something interesting. A lot of people, especially we interviewed on the podcast that are trying to pursue, you know, fire, have this idea out there that, hey, like, I want to get to a point, get passive income and retire. But a lot of them we've heard that have done that and actually successfully, quote unquote, retired have brought up the issue that you just brought up of being bored and not really having purpose and like things to do and figuring out like, okay, like I got all these hours in the day. Now what the heck do I do? Like, even if I, my investments only take three hours a day. Yeah. Uh, it's a real problem. It's a real problem. And so, well, I certainly don't know how to solve it. I mean, it's a new problem. It's a good problem to have, but it's, it's certainly something we have to address. Um, what I've tried to do is create, like I said, we're trying to make a YouTube show out of this, out of flipping. So what I ended up starting to do less this year is I went to, I went to flipping cause it's like, you know, I don't really like that as an asset class or as a business model. But I have all the place, the resources in place to flip houses because I do these rehabs anyway. And then I have my camera. I don't know. Well, I'm a photographer by hobby. And so I was like, man, we could put this, we could give myself something to do because it's an active job. I could flip these houses that we could put on YouTube. And it kind of gives me, it's like, uh, turns your hop, my hobby into a day job. Keeps me busy more than anything. And it's profitable. So that's kind of where I'm at now where it's like, I need to create a job for myself that keeps me busy. That's kind of it. And then, and then we're going to continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That could theoretically, probably not, but maybe go somewhere. At least it keeps me distracted. Um, <laughs> and then we're going to continue to buy bigger multifamilies on the side. So those are challenging and fun. Yeah. So this multifamily, I want to jump back to it just because I know we kind of skipped over it. How come you decided to kind of go away from your core of single families and you just find a good deal or why multi? The answer to every business problem is scale. Yeah. I mean, that's really it. Single families are fun, but the transaction does isn't that much more difficult. I shouldn't say it so cavalier. The transactions aren't that much more difficult to buy 24 units than it is to buy one unit. Um, but the efficiency and income goes way up. And in fact, yeah. uh, 24 is not nearly big enough to get the efficiencies. So sometimes it's just a fun challenge, right? Like nobody, like you said, people want to retire, but they don't want to be done. And so I want to retire, but I don't want to be done. And so buying 24 unit, we could go get a few more singles. I could do that, but it's not as hard. It's harder to go get 24 and buying a 50 is harder than buying a, 
a 24. So I think we're going to continue to scale those up just because they're highly efficient. They require a bunch of new skill sets, at least for me, and uh, keeps me busy. So let's talk about that one. That's by where you're at now, close yep. to where you're Same living now. And how'd you Same find time. that one? Same thing. Uh, local broker. No, commercial and the MLS, n- not a good fit. You got to get, to, you got to know brokers in my experience, my limited experience. You got to know brokers for multifamily because they're going to bring you the deals before they hit the market. Right. Right. Once they hit the market, once they're on loop net, I mean, everybody else Everybody's already passed got them. Usually. Right. Yeah. So how, how much was that? 1 million. And you put 200 in? We put 280, it cost us 280,000 equity to, to, to own the deal. Yeah. And so we raised that between me and four other people that I met on the internet, if you can believe it. And we. Where, where, where'd you meet them on the internet? Like bigger pockets? So, uh, so I hosted a small meetup in Las Vegas on Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. <laughs> and, uh, surprisingly people would show up. So one of my partners <laughs> heard me on the BP podcast and then came out. And, uh, we ended up doing business. One of them, I'm on my website. You can video chat me, uh, for free. That's not, this is not a solicitation. It's like a thing. I just like to meet new people. So on Thursday nights, I'm booked with video chats with strangers. So people hit me up. They'll ask me stuff. So we ended up doing it. Me and a guy did a deal in local fable on a single family. And then one day he emails me. He's like, I just loved how you helped me with this deal. How do we look at this one? And he had t- been talking to a broker about that deal. And he goes, technically, I have all the money. So we can just do it, you and me, if we want, but we can raise bring in other money if we want to try it. And so we ended up putting an LOI in, getting accepted, and we ended up raising outside money because I didn't want to... Well, I wanted the opportunity to make other investors money so that when I need more, they will give it to me. (laughs) So what's the the arrangement there? Do they kind of help fund the money and and you find the deal or you kind of use people put in initially? Yeah, we kept it super simple for the sake of... I didn't... Everybody who's in this deal doesn't really need the money out of it. It was more like, hey, look, let's all practice this and learn it together. Uh-huh. Uh, so we basically did it incredibly simple. Whatever money you put in is how much return you get or how much of the percentage of all the returns you get. So, and it's pretty close to, it's not exactly, but it's pretty close to 20% across the board. Gotcha. So contribution percentage is your ownership percentage in the deal. Exactly. Very simple. Nice. I didn't take anything extra for running the deal. So I'm, I'm being very charitable, but again, like people took a, it's my first one, my first big one. So people took a mm-hmm. risk on, on me and I said, I'll run the deal for free and we'll all kind of be in it together. So that was the arrangement. So lots of di- different directions. You can kind of take a multifamily, right? You can either buy it just for cash flow. You can buy it and fix it up like you did with the single families, or you can just, you can buy it and increase the rent. So what, what class is it first of all? And then maybe what was the strategy there? Was it to put in three, $5,000 into each unit or, or did it just cash flow well already and didn't need to be improved? It was slightly, the, the deal is incredibly uninspiring, unfortunately, or it's just not a good story. I should say it's like <laughs> the deal was sitting there. It was mostly occupied. The guy before it misrun it, uh, mismanaged it, undermanaged it. I don't want to be he was uh-huh. a nice fellow. I don't, I don't want to say anything bad about him. It's more like he, we saw an opportunity to raise rents and run it a little more efficiently. And a lot of it was just like, you know, the first real estate deal, it's like your first, I don't know. It's not, it's not a good, it's not a good analogy to compare it to stocks with your first real estate deal. It's like, dude, just get in there and, and see if you can do it. Like your right. first real estate deal is usually your worst. And so when this multifamily was like, let's just see if we can get in there and do it. It wasn't, you know, trying to knock it out of the park. It was five guys going, Oh, this is scary. Can we do it? Yeah, we can do it. We can make money. So uh, we plan to raise rents. We improve the place a little bit. We're going to increase the efficiency of the, uh, the management over the first six, eight months. Now we've stabilized it very well. It's starting to really kick off some cash flow. So, that's it. It's a cash flow deal, and we're gonna we're, we're hoping that 
we're increase the NOI and sell it in five years for a pretty substantial increase. But unfortunately it was, it wasn't like it's a C class property. They're one ones, which I won't do again. I should have bought two ones, but you know, you get in there. So what, what are, I'm just kind of trying to think, getting an idea one bedroom in that area, what 700 bucks or something. Yeah. Less than that. Yeah. Less than 600 bucks is where we need to be at. Okay. And what was it at? Oh, some of the rents were like, dude, some of the rents were 500, some of them below. Some so of them did you have to put money in them to get it up to 600 or? Yeah. So yeah, again, because we had the contract company, like we just went in there and like little ways, you know, Hey, look, paint and floors go a long way. You know, you go in there, paint and floors and it's like, yeah, this was rented for 500. Now it's 600 all day long. You can't get the five. It's hard to get 600 all tenants in there next to 500 all tenants because they talk. So it's a matter of just slowly and surely getting out the bad apples and getting in um, gotcha. our tenants. And that's just the process. Uh, some people do it all at once. They go in there, they terminate all the leases that are under and they go vacant. Then they do all the rehab. Then they, they start over some people, but that wasn't our, our model. Our model was just get in there, get this in cash flow and, and slowly but surely return it. We have no time frame. It was more like, like I said, it's practice. So gotcha. good for you, man. You guys are crushing it. It's awesome. It's going well. I'm very, look, awesome. for the first six months, it was, it was a little, you know, you get some struggles because you're learning stabilization. You have, you find out how much delayed maintenance deferred maintenance you have you were like mm-hmm. oh, we should, it should have been a lot more done um so the first few months were a little uh a little treacherous but now pretty going pretty smooth very happy with it and we're looking for the next and what is that cash flow or, or once you stabilize it fully what do you think it'll be at will it kick off cash flow to each people each person oh yeah yeah so last month we let's see do a quick little math we kicked off last month i, I my hope is i can pay investors it'll end up being like 12 percent for the year cash on cash Oh, wow. That's great. That's my hope. Yeah. Good for you. So, so many different directions we can go here, Alex. Maybe, you know, because you have so much experience here and you've done seven or eight single families and now one multifamily, what are the top, I don't know, two, three things that have stood out to you as things you wish you would have done differently, maybe mistakes if they were, or things you're glad you avoided? I was really risk averse. So I'm glad, especially right now, I, I have a lot of debt, but I have a lot of cash. So right now going into perhaps, you know, this big financial calamity, we don't know how it's going to look, uh, for real estate investors, having cash is number one, number one, number one, number one. So I'm glad that I have that. Uh, <laughs> I'm really glad I have that we have cash reserves and we're not overloaded, uh, over leveraged on debt. And then I'm also glad I don't really chase shiny bouncy balls. So in this business, it's easy to go like Airbnb is really popular. But again, like right now, Airbnb is tanking. So I'm glad that I didn't chase that because those have, mm-hmm. uh, it's like a shiny bouncy ball. So I don't get distracted easy. It's like, just stay in our little business, go slow. I, uh, it's easy. How do I say it? I tell people don't play the two year game with real estate. Real estate is not a two year game. It's a 40 year game. So I'm always playing the 40 year game. So when people say, Hey, you know, you're leaving money on the table. It's like, yeah, but just right now, like over the, over time, I don't need to get it back. Yeah, well, it's not so much that I'll get it back. It's like, I'm okay with leave, leaving money on the table so that I don't take additional risk that I don't need to. Um, and I'm okay with that. So I think what happens is, you know, ego happens. I'm sort of a lifelong egomaniac. So I know, I know better than most how to recognize when it's getting me in trouble. <laughs> I mean, it, it could be, you mentioned not being over levered. I mean, it could be scary right now, right? We're recording this March 23rd. Not sure when this episode will release, but with this Corona stuff, right? It, it's crazy if you become over levered and, and, Freddie or Fannie Mae has just come out, I think, and said, 
hey, we'll push back rent payments or we'll push back mortgage payments for the next three or four months. And so you don't have yes. to make anybody who has a Fannie Mae loan right now, and I'm sure Freddie will follow, you don't have to pay for the next three or four months a mortgage payment, which, you know, if, if you have a bank that doesn't do that, and then you have people losing jobs and not renting, obviously we know that multifamily sometimes and, and rentals can still be productive in a down market, right? Because people have to sell their homes and then they move into a rental. But still, you know, over levered in a situation like this that hits you by surprise can get you in a real pickle. Yeah. How long does it go, right? Can I afford, it's not so much, you know, I don't want to, I want to push back on the over leverage because that does matter. But what really matters, you can have a hundred percent debt if you have a lot of cash too. Fair. Because cash weathers you the storm, right? It's like, you have too much debt. It's like, yeah, but I have too much cash too. Okay. That's fine. The problem is when you have both, I'm, un, I'm over levered and under reserved. It's like, mm-hmm. dude, you have no wiggle room. So yeah, yeah. It's like, dude, can you miss two or three payments? I can't miss two or three payments for my tenants. Well, now you're in real trouble, but you were always going to be in trouble because you're not going to be able to weather any storm. So. I don't know how long this thing's going to go, right? What if it lasts six months, bro? Ugh, I know. Then, I know. then, then people are starting to be really worried. Yeah. Um, but for me, no, I'm not too worried about that. And again, like you said, banking, the people who have commercial loans that are in-house, uh, debt from ba- small banks, they're not going to get that Fannie Mae relief. You know, your small local bank or my totally. credit union that, totally that has not a unit. Yeah. Sure. They're not going to be able to, they're going to, I'm going to have to give them payments every month. So. But my single families, yeah, if I have to defer, I can, those are all Fannie Mae loans. And I designed it that way right from the start. And I was happy I did. So people in real estate right now are, well, I don't know if they're freaking out or not. I can't speak for everybody, but the time to prepare for today was yesterday, was, was months ago. Yeah, it's past now. Have you used the same bank for a lot of these, these lenders or you work with different banks? So that's a good question. Fannie Mae will let you get 10 Fannie Mae loans. But they'll only, but most banks will only get you, let you get four with them. So I have basically three banks that hold eight loans and then a, a, a credit union that holds the 24 unit. So I expect all those. I had, I use a broker to go for, for the, the mortgages. Um, but they're all Fannie Mae mortgages. So they all should be fine. The 24 unit, we're talking to the lender now to see what their requirements are going to be. My guess is we'll just have to come out of pocket a few months, but that's fine. Alex, as we've been discussing this, this cash position and, and you've built up the reserves and you feel like in your pretty good spot. What have you kind of decided has been maybe a rule of thumb for you in terms of keeping certain amount of cash on hand? I know we kind of discussed this at the beginning, but is there something you found where, Hey, if I get to this many units or, you know, these are kind of my rent roll in a month, I want to keep X amount of cash. I don't have that number. And that's a common question and I should come up with something, but I, the answer is always like, well, whatever number you come up with, you need more. <laughs> well, I mean, because here's, here's what's going to happen, right? Like, uh, I was in the army, so are you familiar with Murphy's Law? Yeah, totally. Yeah, anything can go wrong will go wrong. And well, I do risk analysis for the bank too, so I'm always thinking about these things. And you know, what's what could be a number on if you have twenty, if you have if you have eight single family homes, you probably need. It also depends on how much capex you've done. So when I do all my rehabs, the houses are fine. I don't need HVAC, I don't need water heaters, I don't need roofs, not for a decade. Yet still, it's like on eight single family homes, I probably need twenty grand sitting in an account just in case. Well, right now you need more than that because you need what if a roof goes bad, right? What if uh an HVAC goes out? And then you also have, you know, two months of missed payments due to coronavirus. So whatever you think you need, you need more. I don't have a good, I know that's not a good answer, unfortunately. No, I mean, it's, it's kind of an interesting conversation. I think a lot of investors kind of feel that way, right? Like, I, I, well, it's always more, but then you get a deal come in front of you and you're like, man, I'm going to go buy that deal. And then it's like, I got to build up that cash again, right? 
Yeah, ego. Yeah, a lot of it's ego, right? It's like, do you really need that deal? Or could you go stay? So it's like, it's also like this. What properties do you have and where are you in the market cycle? If like right now, now is not the time to go out and buy uh, deals with low cash. I don't care how good. Well, they're not that good. Not right now. You're not going to find any smoking, screaming deal right now. I don't think. Um, but if the, if you're at the top of the market, it's like you need more cash and you need more reserves and you need to be more apprehensive about deals. But at the bottom of the market, and we, once we know it's at the bottom and you will, right? Like everybody knew. And by 2013, everyone's like, dude, just now we need to get this thing running. Then you need less reserves, right? Because you know, you can get deals cheaper. You know, you can get equity. You know, you can get cheap debt. So I think having a set metric like that, uh, can be deceiving. Cause if you say, Hey, I only need, you know, I need three grand per property. It's like, but not right now. Now you need more. And in 2012, you need less. Right, right. It's a good point. I think the problem with, with oversimplification of metrics, and I understand why they're important, but they leave out a lot of nuance. And so the smart investor will be dynamic to understand that, you know, the world is all gray. I need it. It's a good idea to start with a metric and then adjust a hundred percent to your certain situation. Right. Spot on. All right, Alex, taking a lot of your time. Let me just close up here with a, a couple of rapid fire questions that we normally do. And I think, I think your answers on here will be interesting. So the most expensive car you've ever purchased? Uh, I had a Volkswagen GTI, not that much. It's like 32 grand. Okay. Stupid mistake. <laughs> you've never used a financial advisor, right? Nope. Never used a financial advisor. Any debt, student debt or car debt currently or previously? Uh, nope. I, once I got off consumer debt, I never went back on consumer debt. I use credit cards off fairly quickly i don't keep balances awesome good for you man uh you said you're a reader what books do you recommend i read more than anybody you know bro i write about books on my website uh for investors there's a series by nasim taleb which are i've been screaming about for three years he wrote a very famous book that's being talked about right now called the black swan Mm -hmm. he wrote that in 2013 uh 2007 and then he wrote uh four other books in a series called inserto and i recommend all of them for investors it's a how to invest in a world of risk and uncertainty Gotcha. Any, uh, in closing here, any financial goals for the future? Passive income, net worth, anything, or just kind of taking it deal by deal here? I always want to buy deals that make my life easier, not better. Uh, the money will work out. Sorry. Awesome. I know that's not, I know that's no, not no, a no, sexy no. answer. <laughs> no, it's good because sometimes people go really high on goals. Sometimes people go low on goals. It's just interesting. Anyway. All right, Alex. Well, thanks so much, man. We've taken enough of your time. So appreciate you coming on, on the show and sharing your story. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. This is fun. I'm very grateful. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mattinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.